Welcome to the 50th installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's audio magazine podcast. Ear to the Ground features interviews and field reports related to sustainable agriculture, family farming, local food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. One night in August 2007, Art and Jean Tickey's Hilltop Farm in southeast Minnesota was pounded by 15 inches of rain. This was the same storm that dumped record amounts of precipitation on hilly land throughout southeast Minnesota, southwest Wisconsin, and northeast Iowa. As I traveled throughout that region during the spring of 2008, the results of that downpour could still be seen. Washed out trees and damaged earthen dams, ruined homes, silted in ditches, and most of all, eroded fields. This storm created great gashes on the land and caused entire hillsides to slump. Soil that took many centuries to build was lost in a matter of hours. When I visited the Tiki Farm this spring for a Land Stewardship Project Farm Beginnings Field Day, I was interested to see how the operation had weathered the storm. The Tikis produce milk with 90 cows on dramatic side hills near the Mississippi River. Some of the slopes on the Tiki Farm are so steep that they are quite difficult to walk up without leaning hard into the incline. But amazingly, the rainstorm did very little damage to the farm. In fact, a small pond at the bottom of a steep slope didn't even overflow during the downpour. This is impressive, given the fact that numerous dams, manure lagoons, and other earthen structures in the area were so swamped by water in the aftermath of the drencher that they simply collapsed. The Tiki Pond, which was built in the 1950s, has become a kind of bellwether of the farm's hydrological health. During the field day, the Tikis showed how they produce milk using managed rotational grazing, a system that moves the cows frequently between pasture paddocks. The Tiki farm used to produce row crops, such as corn, using narrow contour strips. And sure enough, that pond would overflow after rains of just a few inches when corn was being raised above it. But in 1985, the family converted their fields to grass and began rotational grazing. Such a system allows livestock farmers to replace row crops with soil-building grass. Instead of the farmer growing and harvesting corn and soybeans for feed in an energy-intensive manner, the animals do their own harvesting for free. Managed rotational grazing also means the animals are hauling their own manure, and since they are moved frequently, the cattle are spreading that manure in a manner that allows the soil to make good use of it as a nutrient and source of organic matter. As field day participants could see on this day in early spring, managed rotational grazing is paying off on the ticky operation. The steep slopes are covered in a lush, diverse stand of grasses, and the certified organic dairy herd is thriving. Bluebirds, turkeys, and other wildlife are making good use of the pastures. After the field day, Art sat down to talk with me about how rotational grazing has allowed the farm to maintain diversity on the land, and how such a diversity is good for the soil and the water, as well as the tickies' bottom line and their quality of life. As Art explains, this is all part of a holistic view of agriculture that connects the health of the land with the health of the farm. Art, we were just out here looking at your at your pastures, and uh, uh, you've got quite a slope here. And I don't know what your average slope. It's incredible. The, it's, pretty steep. it's pretty steep. But one thing you were talking about was when we had these just torrential, this 15-inch rain within in one day, one night, last fall, last August, I guess, that you really noticed, and you've noticed this before with other rains, that you have a pond at the bottom of some pastures there. At a, it's a, at the bottom of a very steep slope that uh, it didn't even fill up. And it was a 15-inch rain. It, with the 15-inch rain, the, the pond never overflowed. It filled up full, but it didn't run over. And um, 
our our farm has a, just a tremendous holding capacity for water. I think it's because of the way we manage it. We probably get more organic matter, and we have a lot of life in the soil, and I think it makes the land able to absorb much more water. And, and so we've really been able to go through big rains without any damage on our farm, which is pretty incredible because there was a lot of damage done in the area. Yeah. Well, and you had talked about when this, uh, I think in 85, you started grazing. And before that, you know, you'd raise corn on the contour there. You had these mile-long fields that were 60 foot wide on the contour. In them days, every time we got a big rain, the pond would run over. And another thing, the pond had to be dug out once in a while because it would fill full of sediment. We haven't dug it out for many, many years, and it doesn't fill in anymore because virtually the water can't hardly make it down there. In fact, the pond's been drying up a lot now because... There's not Well, we've had a lot of dry summers, you know, and it usually will keep going because when we do have a lot of water going to land, we, it gets a lot of water through seepage. But when you get dry, it doesn't get the seepage anymore. Mm. But that's usually how we get the water in the pond through seepage from the land. Yeah. It, one thing I know you really have worked on is you don't do, once you got your pastures established, you don't do a whole lot of renovation every year it sounds like you really kind of let it take right. its course a the last time i've renovated any pastures with a plow was in 1985 and we just if we're going to renovate something we use the animals to have animal impact and then put our seeds in i don't really want to disturb the land i think there's something going on you get a lot of life in the soil when you don't disturb it and plow it because every time you plow it you kill a lot of this and so we're, we're planning on never plowing our land again i think just with the animal impact and something about animals animals really do a good job of I don't know how you can manage your land without cattle because cattle can really help you improve your land if you use them for tools and manage them properly. One thing you, the point you made was nature really likes diversity, and you know you, you really kind of uh, people have asked you about that. Well, why, why do you like diversity so much? But you says, well, why work against it? You know, kind of work with it a little bit. Right. It just seems like nature always wants to go to more diversity. You, know, you plant a field of alfalfa, and after a few years, the grasses start creeping in, and then pretty soon you've got to plow it up and plant alfalfa again. Well, instead of doing that, I'm just I'm encouraging diversity, and if more plants want to come in, that's fine, because my cows, they consume all these plants, and I think if they have a variety of plants, that's a lot healthier for them. They get a lot of different sources of minerals and nutrients and so forth. So my plans are never to plow my farm again. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know if this, if I got this right, but I seem to remember this. The, the ironic thing is I think this farm was featured, was it on the cover of a yearbook of agriculture one time for corn? Right. Our farm was on 19, in 1950 and 1957. Our farm was on the cover of the USDA's yearbook. And back in that time, they were putting strip crops in. You're farming on the contour, and my dad was one of the first ones to do that. But and so they had it on the cover because that was the way to farm more cons- was more conservation in mind. But I think with our our whole farm being in grass and in pasture, I think it's one step further. It's probably time to put our farm on the cover again. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, they don't do the yearbook of agriculture anymore. <laughs> but yeah, I think you would be a prime candidate. You know, I want to switch gears a little bit. Uh, one thing that that's always fascinated me about uh, grazing operations like yours is different ways you look to to make sure that it's, uh, I guess, that it's sustainable and it's, uh, I guess, trying to figure out uh, ways of monitoring that uh, show you that you're treating the land well, plus the cattle are doing well, and then plus your quality of life is doing well. And one of the things I know you've used in the past is birds, is is the grassland birds that uh, that you've got going here, and and I know you got a lot of bluebird boxes out here, and you've had a lot of bobolinks, which are 
I know a threatened uh, grassland species. Is that something you still look at? Uh, is is the birds? Well, well, our farm is really the way we have all our grasses, and especially when we we have longer rest periods, so we're grazing longer grasses. It's really a, a perfect uh, habitat for birds, and so we have uh, many varieties of meadow birds out in our farm. And that's the problem these days with everything being in corn and soybean. There's really not adequate places for these birds to nest, you know, and have fledglings. And one thing, we, we see them nesting on our farm, but we also see fledglings, which is really important. We don't want it just to just be a sink where they are attracted, you know, but we also have, it, have to have it so they can have fledglings that make it, you know. And so our farm is really a prime place for birds. What, what kind of birds have you seen? You oh, we've got a lot of birds out. I mean, there's like bobolinks, you got bluebirds, we got goldfinches, we got eastern kingbirds. I mean, there's savannah sparrows, vesper sparrows. There's just tons of birds out yeah. there. And so, just about, you know, many, many meadow birds. And yeah, no, it's, and you know, it's, it's a good example, I think, of uh, if the birds are doing well, then the grass is doing well. And if the grass is doing well, then the cattle, you know, that, that whole think, kind of falls. Well, I think, I think our whole nature is all set up in a lot of diversity, you know, and, and the birds are one more aspect. You know, I mean, have a lot of varieties of grass, and you can have wildlife, and you got trees. And our farm, I mean, we've got a lot of diversity. Yeah. We've got the water and, and birds, and I think, I think all of them are important. As soon as you eliminate one, we're kind of eliminating part of the balance. Yeah. And so I like to see see the birds. I mean, it just shows me that the balance of my farm is probably pretty good because it's given them adequate feed to eat and yeah. food to eat and habitat to live in and so forth. I know you said some, uh, at times it got a little distracting because you like looking at the birds and you should have been doing chores. <laughs> I used to watch them a lot, you know. I mean, I, I still watch them and stuff, but when I was first learning about them, it was pretty interesting. Yeah. I spent a lot of time trying to figure out what they were. So, But there's a lot of birds out there, especially this time of year. This is just, you know, it's the nesting season. Yeah. Well, I'll just ask you one more question. Uh, one of the other things you talked during the field day about was how you don't push the production. And, and you made a statement, I think I got this right, where you talked a little bit about you really don't see a connection between milk production and profitability, that, that it's more the input costs and, and, and that that's really that you're really looking at. Right, you have you have to look at the whole picture. You know, you can't just look at your production. You got to look at the whole farm as a whole. And in our farm, we're trying to farm for longevity of the pastures, so we don't have to renovate them all the time. Longevity of the cows, and even longevity of ourselves. And and so I think you know, if you don't have a lot of inputs, it's 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 not how much you make, it's but it's how much you keep. And we found that it doesn't necessarily have to be real high production, because at high production, the cost for high production is so tremendous. So you really can, you know, some person with a low herd average can make money, and there's people with high herd average that can make a lot of money, but there's also people in both categories that can't make money. Yeah. And we found the whole thing we got to do is we got to look at the whole farm as a whole and try to find a balance. That's probably the best way to do it. The Tickies were part of an innovative initiative the Land Stewardship Project coordinated back in the 1990s called the Monitoring Project. They and other farm families worked with scientists, natural resource professionals, and others to develop ways of measuring the impacts of their production systems on the land. For more on the Monitoring Project and the special monitoring toolbox created by these farmers and scientists, see www.landstewardshipproject.org and type in the search phrase Monitoring Toolbox. That's Monitoring Toolbox. Send your comments and suggestions about this podcast to me, Brian DeVore at b 
bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org. You can also call me at 612-729-6294. A special thank you goes out to Laura Borgendale, a Western Minnesota musician who provided Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a very special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member and you'd like to support us, go to landstewardshipproject.org to learn how to join LSP. Thanks for listening.